when I first was going to teach on this, it was, I had a difficult time. Um, this part on the blind men is the only, it's the only gospel where it's recorded. Um, and it's the only time that it takes Jesus two times to heal somebody. There's not a instantaneously uh, healing. And so we've kind of before previously been seeing um, Jesus as he's more of a servant for the people. Um, and we see the Pharisees questioning him and the disciples learning from him and being sent out and um, giving them an understanding of what that has to look like. And then I, I get to this section where it's uh, this blind man and I couldn't, I was trying to weave it into what we had been discussing and what we had been talking about previous. And um, to tell you the truth, I, I don't know what the intent or the meaning behind it is. But um, I think where I came to with it, um, and I know my heart was to want to talk about the cost of discipleship towards the end of what we just read about. Um, my heart's there. I, I desire to talk about that. Um, I think I have more of a passion for that. But um, the reason I said I'm not sure if the Lord's going to lead us there because I feel like he's kind of having me stay um, in this section. Um, and I'll do the best I can for a little bit of time we have, but um, one way to look at it, I guess, is um, it's dealing with sight. And in the previous sections, we see the Pharisees wanting to see signs. Um, Jesus is wanting the disciples to see um, the things he's laying before them. Uh, people want to see miraculous signs. And so I could kind of rest on, uh, maybe it ties in because it's dealing with sight. Um, but I want to try to figure out how we get there. And so, um, as we look at it, so as they came to Bethsaida and they brought the blind man to him, they were begging him to touch him. And one of the first things we see Jesus do is touches him. He takes him by the hand and he leads him out of the town. And so it's interesting to me that there's not a healing. This is what they begged for. They asked for him to uh, to touch this man. And so uh, th- they knew that there was power in the touch of Jesus. I think by now, um, the entourage of the disciples and Jesus coming through, they had no doubt heard that uh, what Jesus could do. Now, I don't think there was an understanding of who he was. It was more of, of what he could do, but... Um, they knew the miraculous things that he had done to this point. And it had been accounted by thousands. So just previously we were talking about the feeding of the 4,000 and before that the feeding of the 5,000. And in those accounts, uh, sh- surely uh, word spread pretty fast because even even in the feeding of the four and 5,000, that's about 20,000 people uh, that had to witness this miracle. And now, Alan, before you judge my math there, I know four and five doesn't add to 20, but the men and women that were with the uh, four and 5,000 men, some people say it could have been multiplied by, by 10. So <clears throat> regardless, his people are understanding that, that as he's coming through, um, there's a desperate need to get to him for the healing. But it's, it's a physical healing. It's not, it's not a searching of the soul and the healing of... of um, 
just a new heart. And so I think people were desperate then. Um, people had been in all kinds of bondage to the idols that they had served in that culture. And um, this was something new that was coming in that, that, uh, that Jesus, the man of Jesus, could, could heal just by the touch of his garment. And so as we get into it, that's the other interesting thing is Jesus takes two times to heal this person. He, he spits in his eye at first, and then he, he looks up and the man doesn't see. I mean, he sees the word there in the Greek, um, which I'll cover in just a little bit, means that he saw. So as he's looking up, he, he no doubt saw Jesus, but he doesn't see fully. And so Jesus touches him again. And the man's restored to full sight. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit in his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. It's interesting that he leads him out of the town to do it. There wasn't, they were probably surrounded by a bunch of people. And Jesus' choice to take him out of the town was to draw him away from from the crowd. But I think it's interesting because it's the same reason that he may tell people when he heals them to not tell anybody. You would think that it would be something that that we should proclaim and stuff, but in these certain instances, Christ knew what he was doing. He had an agenda and he understood uh, he understood what was going to happen ahead of time. And so to pull him aside, um he uh as he's pulling him aside, um, he's got an intent. And I think some of it could have been <clears throat> kind of the same analogy as, as we, in our culture, um, you can look at going to the doctor um, anymore. I don't necessarily think, and not per se us, but this generation goes to the doctor because <clears throat> they know they're going to get a pill to heal it. It's not necessarily even the doctor that's going to heal. So, our longing to go see the doctor to get fixed has been replaced by um, by our, our our idol or our worship to to this thing that has came in its place. And it's <clears throat> we're not looking for the truth from the doctors. We're not looking to fix the true issue. We're just we're just wanting the fix for now. And I think it's the same intent that Jesus understood why he had to take him away and also tell him not to tell anybody because people would slowly take that out of context and they'd start to idolize the healing and not the, not the healer, not Jesus. It becomes a heart condition that needs to be changed. And it also doesn't matter if he does it in front of a bunch of people or not. Um, he came to be the light of the world. We can know for certain that he knows what he's doing. So if we look in John 9, 1, and I'll flip there real quick. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered and said, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. 
<clears throat> so Christ knew what he was doing as he pulled this guy away and as he took the two times to heal him and, and what it revealed, and I'm, I'm sure the disciples were there watching, so no doubt there's a lesson in there for them too. God will use it for his glory. It's not the blind man, but it's for the glory of the Lord. Besides, if it's only the one, that's sufficient enough. And I wanted to refer back to Luke 15, 10. Likewise, I say to you that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Or Luke 15, 4 through 5. Going after the one and rejoicing when he's found. And so it... In the context of, of the blind man being healed and, and the confusion that I had over trying to understand why he would pull him away, why it would take him, I don't, I don't necessarily think the emphasis has to be on, on why it seems like it's somewhat out of place. Um, we don't need to be concerned whether Jesus knows what he's doing or not. <clears throat> I think the message there is God understands and it's for his glory. And even if it's just going after the one blind man, he still has compassion. He still has grace. So he's he's um, he's healing him nevertheless, regardless of how many times it had taken him. And he does it in different ways and different accounts we can see throughout uh, his whole ministry. <clears throat> now the spit thing, I'm not going to act like I know what that's about. That's kind of gross, but... <laughs> He used it in three different occasions. Um, one was in John 9, like we just heard. He'll spit in the clay and he'll rub it on the guy's eyes. And, and then the guy will go and wash and, and he'll be healed of his sight. And it's the same part in, in what he, he's talking about as he's telling the disciples. It's not the, the, the blind man that sinned, but it's the work of the Father in him. This blind man goes down to wash in the water and then he goes back and people ask that know who he is. And, and they ask, is this not the, the blind man? And, and then he goes and tells the Pharisees. And there's a whole chain of events that Christ knew what he was doing up to that point to prepare them for him when he comes. <clears throat> and even to set up the conflict that set him up to, to hang on the cross for our sins. So we can understand that it's not... not the formula, not how he does it. And I think this is what he was trying to communicate, that there's a culture, like I was talking about, the Roman culture, the Jewish culture, that there was healing power in saliva, spit. That's what they thought it had some healing powers. And so he knows that this is the culture and he's going to show, I'm going I'm to spit in your eye and it's not going to work. And then I'm going to show you that I can ultimately heal you. This is my plan. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. <clears throat> now that indication <clears throat> must have meant that he had sight before. I, I don't know that that has any importance in it, but it's interesting to note that he said he saw men like trees as if he had seen trees before. But the word <clears throat> see in this, the Greek word is uh, blepo. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, it's a primary verb to look at literally or figuratively. Behold, beware, lie, look. On to perceive, regard, see, sight, and take heed. So as he looks up and he sees things unclear, 
I have to believe that he can still see Christ in front of him. Now, not to make this about me or us or anything, but I think it's a good analogy that brings us to a point in what Jesus is doing here that um, you know, as we come to know who Christ is, as we accept Christ as our Savior, um, there's an eye-opening account. I mean, there's I have changed drastically, and I remember um, first accepting Him, and I just remember the difference in my life. Even though I was really young, I just I still remember. There's an excitement. There's there's something different about it. Our sight we can see. But it's different than the Greek word saw after he looked up and he saw everything clearly. Um, that one is emblepo. And it's to look on, to observe fixedly or absolutely, to discern clearly, behold, gaze up and look upon. So to me, it might be a good reminder that as even though the Lord's opened my eyes, I still see things unclear and I need to come back to him for him to open my eyes fully um, so I can see with the eyes of Christ. There's a great example of this in Paul's account of him being blind on the road to Damascus. And it just brings me to a place to praise God for his grace, that even in our blindness, he loves us enough to pull us aside and spit in our eye. <clears throat> then he puts his hands on his... Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up, and he was restored and saw everything clearly. So that's the point. Ultimately, he is restored regardless of how long it had taken to heal Jesus. Or to heal, not heal Jesus. Jesus didn't need to even touch him, like we mentioned earlier. The gal that was bleeding that touched the hem of his garment was healed. These people didn't understand that and know because they didn't know who Christ was. So there's there's going to be, and we're going to read on as, as we see Peter's confession of Christ, that we're going to understand his intent. Um, I have a note here, Mark 19, 18. Um, Jesus brings them to this place of understanding to pray and intercede fast and let it be of the Lord and not the miraculous devotion of a not very well-equipped disciple. This is understood a little bit better if we look at James uh, 5.16. To confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. I think we've got to understand that if, if we're seeing things unclearly, to know when things aren't happening or when things don't look the way we do, uh, as we'll see in Peter's agenda, that he he's not he's rebuking Christ. I can only imagine what that looked like. But the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. To be in prayer constantly, that Christ would open our eyes fully. Then he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. Jesus tells this man to go tell no one, and he does this on many accounts. Um, (laughs) 
Just like in John, he knows the purpose of what he came for. Jesus is setting the trail to fulfill the prophecy of his death and resurrection. And I think in certain accounts, people just weren't ready to understand that, as we'll see in, in Paul's reaction to what Christ has to say. <clears throat> now, Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? Well, I think it's a valid question, I think, at this point. <clears throat> um, he obviously knows the answer to that. Uh, he's not, I think it's kind of a um, rhetorical question a little bit. Um, but I couldn't imagine being asked that by Christ. I'm sure I would hesitate before I answered, <clears throat> knowing he's setting the stage for something, as he had just been talking to them in parables prior to all of this. So they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. <clears throat> now, Herod had just thought he was John the Baptist because people were talking about Jesus and what he was doing, and he kind of had the same accounts as what John had done in his ministry as he was um, before he was decapitated. Um, So we see that people are understanding that there's there's someone doing this stuff, but they, they still don't know who he is. There's still not a an understanding of, of what the Messiah would look like. And people had all kinds of ideas, um, including the disciples, even though they were walking with him. But he hadn't revealed that much to them at that point because they weren't ready, as they just had learned how to go out and be disciples. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. It's not enough to know who people say Christ is. We can't stop there. We have to have an account for ourselves. Now this is just a short version. Mark doesn't give the full version, so I want to... Uh, I want to... I want to stay right where we're at. I'm going to talk about it for a second. Uh, <clears throat> who do we say that he is? If we can't give an answer or an account for that, then every wind of doctrine would tear our faith apart. We have to be able to answer this with authority and grasp what it means. So if we turn to Ephesians 4, 13, and 14. And I'll actually start in 12 just because it kind of starts from there. But for the equipping of the saints, for the works of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the... Met, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, but the trickery of man and the cunning craftiness of the deceitful plotting. But we're to speak truth and to understand what it means. We have to be grounded on something.
So as Peter gives an account, um, it's funny, he's the first one to speak up. <laughs> and I'm sure that's for a reason, as we'll see. But um, Jesus finds favor in what Peter says. And this is in Matthew's account is where I wanted to hop back to Matthew and um, kind of read his account of it because it kind of gives you a fuller version of of uh, this story. So in Matthew um, 16, 13 through 23. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I am? The son, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? So that's also funny because he's asking who do they say that he is and he's telling them who he is in that same sentence. So they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, that's Barjona is son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Now I think that the, him calling him, saying, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, I think the son of Jonah is kind of using a reference to his dad, like, boy, good answer, that's a good answer. Um, he's giving him some praise for having the correct answer. Um, and uh, if Peter was puffed up at all, he's going to quickly be deflated here in a second. So... Um, So when he says, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. We can look at that and, and um, understand that he's not giving full praise to Peter. He's giving it to God. Because um, it wasn't Peter's unveiling of, of who he was. It was God that made him understand this. Just as he does in John 9, 1, for the blind man's sake. This is why Christ may have been uh, healing in different ways to direct praise from um, the miracles themselves and to put them on God. There was always a need for increase in faith and not one form of healing was going to be the standard for miracles. It had to be Christ alone. And we see that on multiple accounts throughout the Gospels. You know, as he's talking to Peter in that, um, some of the Greek wordage, and I don't have it all fixed out, but it's um, Peter's name, meaning the rock. Um, and, he's, and he's telling him later on in Matthew, if you keep reading on, on that, that uh, this is what the church is going to be founded on. And I, I just, there's some truth to the church being founded on the rock, but I don't think it's, it, it may be misunderstood in some ways that, that Peter's going to be the foundation of the church. And I think it was what Peter was saying there, that, and regardless of how we look at it, the end result is, is the foundation of the church comes through Christ and Christ alone. So he's the chief cornerstone. And so I had some section on that, but I, I think that's, that's entirely a different um, sermon. And so we'll just <clears throat> move on with the next. So then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. Again, he's well aware of what he's doing. 
and what he must accomplish for the Father's will. As we see when he rebukes Peter, the disciples weren't ready to hear what his agenda was. They had their own agenda. They had their own ideal of what Christ was going to look like and what it was going to be and what it was going to mean for them. When you have a mouth like Peter, there seems to be more head slapping, and that's kind of what Rory was talking about, than hand clapping. He has to rebuke Peter in, in the following verse. So, or in the following verses. So Jesus um, predicts his death and resurrection. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Um, <clears throat> so others were around as he spoke openly. Um, and I think we can see Peter's agenda in this as he's pulling Christ aside to tell him, no, 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 no. Don't say that out loud. They're probably going to laugh at us if you say that because you're supposed to come and, and conquer. We're not going to allow you to be killed. Peter's agenda was always first. I'm not going to deny you three times. Don't tell me that. Um, Peter has the mindset of men and not of God. And this is what he exhorts him to after he rebukes him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Peter's heart was good. I don't think Peter's in, intentions were bad um, in trying to, to not have Christ say this stuff out loud. But he's still a sinful, wicked person. His heart is wicked. We're not to trust our heart. He's compassionate sometimes, too much. He wore his heart on his sleeve. But look at Jeremiah 17, 9, and 10. And I can just read it if nobody wants to flip there. 79. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. So Peter is following his heart in most cases. Um, It's not enough to know what others say about Christ. Peter has to know and have this confession that he's willing to pick up his cross and follow Christ, regardless of what it should look like. It can't stop at a confession of him. Our hearts of stone must be removed. The blurry vision must be healed. We have to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts, pick up our roadside begging implements, and walk with the new legs Christ has given us. Metaphorically speaking, I, some people can do this in a wheelchair. But nevertheless, it's a call to pick up a cross and follow Him. So... <clears throat> 
I have some stuff written down on the cost of discipleship, and I want to let you guys know, like, my heart, I desire to talk about that because um, I think it's truly important. Um, but I think um, I think that needs to be done in a totally different sermon and for itself because... Um, as we figure out what the cost of discipleship looks like for us, and hopefully intently we can listen to whatever the sermon is on this that points to Christ and points to what he's done in our life and what he'll do in our life as we lay down our cross and follow him. But we got to get the spit out of our eyes and be able to see clearly before we can understand what the cost of discipleship looks like. And so... I just wanted to challenge us to look at Peter's confession of Christ and understand why he was rebuked after. That it's easy for us to, to set our own agenda and, and try to to understand what God's doing in our life and try to wade through the waters that seem like they're too high. But God's trying to make a point. He's been trying to make a point. And thankfully, we can see his grace in all of this. Thankfully, for the disciples' sake, for our sake, God knew what he had to accomplish to save lost souls, which is, it's us. And so, just this week, as we're going through our daily lives, man, just to, we get service out here? (laughs) Oh, okay. Is <laughs> oh. Man, just that we would try to have a mind on the things of God and things might start to look a little different for us.